1: So go to squarespace.com stuff right now and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code stuff and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace?
0: Hey, everybody in Orlando, we feel pretty sure that you've heard the news. But if you haven't, our show that was postponed has been rescheduled for Friday, September 8th, which is great news.
1: Yeah, it is great news. If you thought a Saturday show was going to be great, wait until you see us on a Friday, Orlando.
0: That's right. And uh, the venue should have gotten in touch with you by now. Your tickets are still good. If you cannot go, we're very sad, uh, but you can get a refund on that. And hey, if you're available now on Friday, September 8th, come and see us in Orlando.
1: Yeah, tickets are still available. And you can get all the information you need by going to linktree/sysk or stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our on-tour page. And we'll see you September 8th.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh. There's Chuck. Jerry's here, too. And this is Stuff You Should Know, part of our ongoing musical saga. It's frequently overlooked, um, but when we do them, can we hit them out of the park? Remember, Remember uh, the one where we talked about pitch and we got every single thing we could have possibly gotten wrong wrong?
0: (laughs) I file this more sort of in the same category as the the great episodes we did on Les Paul and Leo Fender.
1: Yeah, music.
0: Yeah, but, uh, you know, why you got to bring up our worst music one?
1: (laughs) (laughs) What else have we done? We've done some other musical stuff, haven't we? We've done, like, actual genres, punk and hip-hop and...
0: Yeah, disco?
1: Yes, great one. You love that one. We have a robust musical suite going, and this adds to it, I think. This is a good idea on your part, because we're talking about a guy who I always thought his first name was John, and I couldn't figure out why, and then I realized that— Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park. (laughs) His name was John Hammond. (laughs) That's funny. For sure. Yeah. Um, So his name name actually isn't John. It's Lawrence, but I think you pronounce it like Lawrence, but it's spelled Lawrence.
0: Yeah. I've heard Lawrence Hammond. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's very But he went sh- by Larry, so let's just call him Larry.
1: Yeah, that's why I thought they probably pronounced it Lawrence. But if you recognize his last name, not from Jurassic Park, uh, but from the electric organ, because he was indisputably the inventor of the electric organ. He was the first guy to really put everything together and make it work.
0: That's right. Uh, specifically, obviously, the Hammond organ. Uh, and very much notably the Hammond B3, uh, which was one of the organs in his line of organs. And uh, if you are a, a piano player or an organist, a keyboard person, mm-hmm. then you're like, oh, yeah, S- speak to me, baby. Uh, if you are not and you're like, Hammond B3, what's that? It is the sound of rock and roll. It is uh, it is Refugee by Tom Petty, and... Uh, half the songs in of Boston, and oh, yeah. it's, uh, oh yeah, you know the big organ solo and mm-hmm. the big uh, Boston Suite. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan and uh, Wider Shade of Pale by uh, Procol Haram. Uh, it is, in so many songs that you know and love, uh, one of the more, and, and that's not to mention, you know, jazz and everything else that the, the Hammond B-3 was used for, but it really made its mark on rock and roll uh, in the 60s and 70s, even though it was built and created in 1935, and mm-hmm. even though Larry Hammond, by all accounts, was tone deaf and did not play a note of any instrument ever in his life.
1: Yeah, I mean, that by his own admission, from what I understand. It's
0: like Leo Fender.
1: Yeah, I forgot about that, but yeah. One other, I think one other um, group that requires shouting, I think Dr. Teeth played a Hammond B-3.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, he, Larry Hammond didn't know what he was doing with music, but he knew what he was doing with engineering, specifically electrical engineering, yeah. which at the time he was studying this. He was born in 1895, started studying in the first couple decades of the 20th century. This was some brand new yeah. stuff. And this guy was at the bleeding edge of the whole thing, Bleeding, which I used correctly finally.
0: Did you say leading or bleeding? I said bleeding. No, bleeding is when it leads to bad things. People have been electrocuted. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, so Hammond was born, a young boy, and, uh, just outside Chicago in the suburb of Evanston, Illinois, uh, like you said, in 1895. And he was uh, the only boy of four kids. He had three sisters, uh, had a father who was a banker who died when he was two, and a mother named—this uh, is a great name—Idea uh, Strong— Hammond, who was uh, an impressionist painter Mm -hmm. and, you know, pretty accomplished and uh, and an artist and a creative. So once Mr. Hammond dies, when uh, little Larry's just two, she says, you know what? I'm packing up my three girls and my son and we're going to Europe where you can be submerged in the arts and get what I think is probably a more proper education.
1: Yeah. So, from the time they moved there when he was four till the time they moved back to Evanston when he was 14, um, he they lived in Geneva and Dresden and Paris. And one of the things about Larry Hammond was from an extraordinarily young age, he was a tinkerer. He wanted to know how things worked. Mm-hmm. And when they landed in Paris, I'm not sure exactly what age he was at the time. I think uh, he was a tween possibly. But France was like, this was when the first cars were really being designed and built, mm-hmm. and France was the epicenter of that. And Larry, little Larry Hammond happened to live there at the time, so he was taking apart engines from a very young age and actually came up with the crude version of an automatic transmission yeah. a decade before it was ever actually <laughs> patented. That's what this oh, kid man. was doing as a tween.
0: yeah. Yeah, as a 12-year-old, he was incredibly brilliant, uh, probably a genius. I know that word is thrown around a lot. But if you're doing that kind of thing when you're 12 in the early 20th century, then that qualifies in my book.
1: Yeah, I was putting on like half a bottle of polo cologne and wandering around the mall (laughs) at this age.
0: I was uh, in the basement hiding from Satan.
1: (laughs) There you go. That's another thing to do. That's another thing to do.
0: Uh, so, the Hammonds were, like I said, they were all pretty accomplished. Well, the mom was pretty accomplished, and all his sisters would go on to do great things. Uh, his sister Eunice was a, a writer and a poet and edited a poetry magazine. Uh, his sister Louise was a missionary in China who would transcribe uh, Christian hymnals and, and religious books in Chinese. Mm-hmm. And his sister Peggy was a musician. She was a, a cellist, a world class cellist. But young Larry was not inclined musically. Uh, when they went back to Evanston, Illinois, he continued continued to, to sort of experiment and take things apart and put them back together. And eventually he got uh, a little taste of success early on when he was 16. He got his first U.S. patent with uh, a, a kind of a new and improved barometer mm-hmm. that he ended up making a few hundred bucks off of, which, you know, was pretty good for a 16-year-old in the 19, what is this, 20s Teens. at this point? Teens?
1: Yeah, he would have been, uh, it would have been nineteen. 19- Four, nineteen oh nine.
0: 1909.
1: Okay, yeah. 1911, somewhere in there. All right. So, yeah, he ended up going on to college. Um, I don't think there was ever any question whether he was going to or not, thanks to his mom and her strong will about education and work ethic. And he ended up at um, Cornell in Ithaca. And apparently, according to the Larry Hammond legend, yeah. he finally kind of came to understand his own maybe mission in life, if not brilliance. Mm-hmm. From what I read, he had a bit of an ego here or there, although he was generally a good guy. This story kind of
0: jibes. I've never known any genius inventors to have large egos. <laughs> right. It's unusual. They're
1: usually very meek, and they hide in the basement from Satan too. That's right. Um, but he uh, he the night before exams— He and his friends went out to Syracuse and were drinking, drinking, drinking and caught the last train back to Ithaca. And when they got to class, they were still kind of drunk. And Larry Hammond wandered into the wrong class, did he not? What happened after that, Chuck?
0: Well, apparently he went in on exam day to an uh, electrical engineering class that he wasn't even taking and aced the final or aced the exam. I don't know if it was a final. Yeah. And I, I think, like you said, as the legend goes, that's when he was like, "Huh, I'm a pretty smart guy, and I am good at inventing things, and so that's what I'm going to dedicate my life to."
1: Yeah, he's not only that; he was going to be an independent inventor. That is a that's a life choice right there.
0: Oh, right, like not going to work for GE or Westinghouse or whatever.
1: Right, um, and he didn't. He ended up going somewhere. I don't remember where. Um, he had a couple of jobs for sure, especially to start out, but. The first thing he did after Cornell was to go enlist in World War I. Yeah. And um, I think he was stationed in France for a little while, was mistaken for a French deserter because his French was so good. Another part of his legend. It's yeah. a good little story. But then after that, he moved to Detroit and he took a job. Uh, he became chief engineer. and He's still very young um, at a company that made boat engines. Because remember, he had spent a lot of his tweens taking engines apart. He, he could ace an electrical engineering final but he also was studying mechanical engineering at the time. So it makes sense that he was working at a company that made boat engines.
0: Yeah, and he was it was called the Gray Motor Company. And apparently the guy he was working for was someone that served with him in army and said, I I think it wasn't enough money or something. And under the table, this guy paid him an extra 300 bucks a week that no one knew about just to keep him working on these boat engines. Like that, He knew he was that valuable and that he probably shouldn't be making boat engines. So he greased the wheel. He greased the palm a little bit.
1: He greased the propeller. <laughs> but remember, he wanted to be an independent inventor. And if you have the spirit of an inventor and the ego of somebody who can ace an electrical exam without taking the test, mm-hmm. no amount of money is going to make you satisfied spending your yeah. life making boat engines for somebody else. So he struck out. And I think he did it the smart way. Not struck way.
0: out as in failed, like baseball.
1: No, the the other way around.
0: Yeah, like he, struck out on his own. Exactly. Just so people know.
1: I think he was still working, though, and in, uh, like at night he was working on his own stuff. So it, it, this was while he was working at the boat company, from what I understand. But he came up with something called a tickless clock. Um, not ticklish clock, a tickless clock. Um, that you couldn't hear tick, because apparently that drove him crazy. And I feel this guy. If you've ever had a loud clock in the room with you while you're trying to sleep, there's nothing else you can concentrate on except the stupid ticking of that stupid clock. Yeah. And Larry Hammond felt the same way, so he invented one that didn't make the ticking sound.
0: That's right. Uh, And he was like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to sell this idea. He sold that idea, made some pretty good money on it, uh, enough that he was able to move to New York and open up his own... Um, sort of an invention factory. And he invented something there that kind of was the beginning of what would end up like informing his future career in a lot of ways. Uh, and that was the synchronous motor. Mm. Uh, in America at the time, we were making, this is the early 20s, they were making the switch to uh, 60 hertz from 50 hertz. Yeah. Uh, Westinghouse came along and they had a lot of sway, obviously, and said, you know what? This arc lighting system we have looks a lot better at 60 hertz. We need everything to be um, the same. So, uh, United States, can we all move to 60 hertz? And the government said, sure.
1: Right. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So, 60 hertz is 60 cycles a second. And it's part of alternating current, which, as we remember, um, won out the current wars because you can send it over very long distances um, with very little loss of um of energy, right? Yeah. So um, they switched over to 60 cycles a second. And Hammond said, well, wait a minute, that's that's precise. Like, we're talking about a, a precise, like something is moving back and forth between the poles 60 times a second. And we're talking about electrons. You can set your watch by electrons, basically. Um, so his synchronous motor plugged into that 60 cycle a second electrical current, and it created a, a, a motion that spun just as reliably as those electrons, which pulls back and forth 60 times a second.
0: That's right. And if you're thinking, I don't even know what this means, guys, who, who cares? What this means is all of a sudden you can electrify things that were previously not electrified. Yeah. Uh, like, oh, I don't know, that tickless clock that you still had to wind over and over, like every clock in the world that you had to wind over and over. By the way, Chuck, that tickless
1: clock, the way it was tickless is the motor was put into a soundproof box. Yeah, pretty easy. Which means that you could also say it was a tick in the box. Okay, so um, the synchronous motor, though, this was the fact that it was very precise, that it was going to spin X number of times every second. Um, that was a really big deal because if you have something that is that precise and that has is current is, is getting an electrical current that's keeping it that precise no matter what, um, you can do all sorts of things. Like you said, he had an electrical clock. Um, you can make little shutters spin in front of people's eyes without them even realizing that they're spinning. All sorts of things you can do with a synchronous motor, and that was mm-hmm. the basis of a lot of his inventions that followed.
0: All right, I think that was a great little tease setup.
1: I'm sorry for teasing you, everybody.
0: No, I love it because people are going like, "What do you mean shutters in front of your eyes?" Well, we're going to explain that right after this. Uh, we'll be right back.
1: All right, game off.
0: so Josh left a great little tease. Sorry, uh, I did mention that he started making these clocks, but this this next thing actually happened first because he did have a lot of success with the Hammond Clock Company because mm-hmm. everyone was like, "These electric clocks are amazing! I don't want to wind my clock ever again." Right, and you don't have to. Uh, but before he found success there, he invented basically invented 3D movies in the silent era of cinema.
1: Insane. So, remember from our Stereogram, our Magic Eye episode?
0: Yeah, this is perfect for this.
1: It is. It's basically the same stuff going on around the same time. But he came up with something called the Teleview. And you basically created a a film with two cameras set a little bit apart. And now, all of a sudden, you've got two slightly different perspectives of the same thing, which, as you remember from our our Stereogram episode, Mm -hmm. the eye loves to turn into depth and perspective, right? Yeah. Um, so then you project the movie onto the screen using those two projectors, not overlapping, but alternating very quickly between the right image and the left image. Right image, left image. That sounds like a headache, and it probably would be if it yeah. weren't for the viewers that um, that Hammond created that every seat had that you looked at this movie through. And when the left image was up on the screen, a shutter closed over your right eye so all you could see was your left image and then the same thing for your right eye with the right image and this all happened so fast that your brain didn't make note of it all it saw were two slightly different perspectives of the same thing and turned it into what's called parallax depth um, based on your position of where you're sitting and where you're viewing an object
0: amazing and again this is all possible because of that synchronous motor which was spinning these two little things in front of your eyeballs.
1: Exactly. Isn't that nuts? This was the 20s, and this guy came up with 3D. <laughs> and it worked really well. It worked so well that people were a little put off by it. Yeah. I read an article from The Atlantic that was written in 1940, a profile of John Hammond. They said that the movie, the one movie that he made, Hello, Mars, um, was so crystal clear that the, you, the it says close-ups of love scenes were almost embarrassing. <laughs> And you could see the sweat on the actors' faces. So yeah. apparently it was distracting. It was so so realistic and so lifelike that nobody was following the plot. And they were maybe even a little put off.
0: All right. So this isn't working out as far as being a great business idea. Um, but he was like, you know what? I still, you know, I could make this thing without those little spinny goggles. He said I could actually do it with colored lenses. Yeah. These little cheap cardboard things that, you know, and... 30 years everyone is gonna think is the coolest thing ever yeah uh, and he did that he created some for Zigfield himself and the Zigfield Follies which was the the biggest show going in vaudeville in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, he called this the shadow graph and he had actors standing behind a transparent screen and he backlit them with a red and a green light spaced a few feet apart and then projected their shadows on the screen and when you wore those 3d glasses, it, again, created depth, and it looked like they were sort of leaping off the screen. Mm-hmm. And Zigfield loved this one. He was like, I'll pay you uh, $75,000 to use this stuff for two years, mm-hmm. which is about $1.3 million bucks today. Do you know how many drachmas it is? How many?
1: <laughs> 420,578,000 wow. plus drachmas as Amazing. of today.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, by this point, he's, he's rich, or at the very least, he can use that money to fund doing whatever he wants to do invention wise.
1: Being an independent inventor, he's realized his dream by this point. That's right. In the 20s. So he was in his 20s still. It's pretty great stuff. Yeah. Also, I saw that this is the only effect that Zigfield used over two seasons. Zigfield liked to keep things fresh and cutting edge, but mm-hmm. he loved this this um, the the shadow graph so much that he used it over two different seasons, which is kind of a, an honor in and of itself. Super cool. So let's get back to that synchronous motor, the 60-cycle second that was so reliable, you could never have to wind a clock from it, right? All right. He, um, well, let's go back even further than that, Chuck. Let's go back to the 1890s, which is the same year Hammond was born, 1895. And there was an American inventor named Thaddeus Cahill, who um, was the first person to come up with an an electromechanical, not strictly electronic, but it had some some gears and stuff to it, so it was electromechanical. It's called the Telharmonium. And well, let's let's go back even further than that, Chuck. Okay. To the 1860s, and we're gonna yeah. hop on over to Germany.
0: All right. I'm picking up what you're laying down. Uh there was a German scientist named uh, Hermann von Helmholtz, <laughs> and he uh he knew music a little bit and he's like, here's one thing I know is that when you hear a musical note, it's a sound wave that you're hearing, vibrating at a frequency. Like if you hear an A key on a piano, it's vibrating at a very specific frequency that makes uh, the sound of what you would call an A note. Right. But here's the deal. He said it sounds more than an A note. It's very warm and there's depth to it. And he figured out what you're hearing is called a harmonic, which is... You know, when one thing vibrates, things near it are also activated and Mm -hmm. maybe vibrate a little bit. And these little background frequencies uh, vibrating along with that A note create this richer, fuller sound called a harmonic.
1: Yeah, so Helmholtz's big contribution in the 1860s is to chart all of these harmonics. Yeah. So uh, from what I understand, then he would go through and say an A on a cello has all these uh, accompanying vibrations. And A on a violin has all these different vibrations and wrote them out as frequencies, right? So he, he created a, a scientific mathematic roadmap mm-hmm. to recreating those frequencies using something other than a cello or other than a violin. If you have that information and you can reproduce those frequencies together, they will make an artificial sound of a violin or an artificial sound of a cello. This right. is what Hemholtz contributed, which is pretty significant. Hugely. Now back to Cahill.
0: All right. So back to Cahill. Again, he was the American inventor who invented the first electromechanical, I don't even think he said musical instrument.
1: Did I just stop with electromechanical? Yeah. Man, what, I sloppy.
0: Uh, that was called, no, you're not. You're great. That's called the, uh, that was called the telharmonium. And uh, he created something called the tone wheel. And it was, you really should look it up. It's kind of hard to describe. It's this this very large disc-shaped motor, it has cogs, and when you spin that rotor, uh, the, working with a magnet, like, you know, the same way you would with an electric guitar pickup, mm. uh, it, the cogs pass through a magnetic field mm-hmm. by this coiled copper wire around the magnet, and if you spin it at a steady pace, it's gonna generate a, a very specific frequency, an electrical frequency, mm-hmm. and if you amplify that, that's where you're gonna finally hear that musical tone come out, uh, Hemholtz was talking about so many years earlier.
1: Yeah. So what? What if you have say 400 cogs on this tone wheel, and they pass through the electrical field four 400 times a second? It makes one full revolution per second. It will generate a current um, with a frequency of 400 hertz, and that is the same frequency as an A4 node. So, so what Cahill has just done is create a way to reproduce that A4 note or any note you want to if you can figure out what the frequency is thanks to Hemholtz um, and then build a cog that has that number of um, little prongs or something on it um, thanks to Cahill.
0: Right. So what he did, like uh, we mentioned, was create that teleharmonium, which was sort of, like you said, the the very first uh, uh, mecha- electromechanical instrument. But it was a problem because it was Huge! It weighed 200 tons. It cost what would be seven million dollars today, and 2. it was the size of 2, a train car. Two
1: point two billion drachmas.
0: So obviously, this thing's not going to sell. Nobody's interested in a teleharmonium, but that really set the stage for Larry Hammond's work.
1: Definitely. So that, and that's a really important point for inventors. To to whenever you talk about an inventor very, very rare that somebody comes up f- with a full idea from scratch. You know, right. they stand on the shoulders of giants, they always say. That's what Hammond did. He was the first person to figure out how to make this stuff practical. And he had the wit and the brains and the um, interest to make it happen. And so um, after Cahill basically gave up because he created a $7 million, 200-ton train car of a electromechanical instrument. <laughs> yeah. Hammonds was like, I'm, I'm going to pick this up. I never saw Chuck if he knew about Cahill's invention or how he knew about Cahill's invention or if he was inspired by Cahill. I'm not sure. I think that it was too—I I don't, I don't know. But he basically took the tone wheel, however he heard about it, and he figured out how to make it much smaller, much more practical, rather than the size of, like, a huge cylinder. It was the size of about a, a silver dollar, And when you get something that is that useful down to that size, you can put a bunch of them together and do some really amazing stuff. And that's what he did. That was the basis of the Hammond organ.
0: That's right. Uh, It didn't initially start out that way, though. He had been, like I said, selling a lot of electric clocks, was making pretty good money doing that. But then everybody started making electric clocks, and his company wasn't as valuable all of a sudden. Mm. And I don't think we mentioned that he was – he was an independent inventor, but he wanted to put people to work. Like he was very proud of um, supplying jobs to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he always wanted to have like his successful company, um, you know, certainly to enrich himself, but also so he, could, so he could put people to work. I mean, this was, a lot of this stuff was during the depression, a lot of his work was. So he was really proud of putting Americans to work. And I think Hammond eventually ended up having like 3000 employees. Mm. Uh, when the organ was at its peak, which was a really big deal to him. Uh, But the clock is slowing down, not literally. Uh, The business was, though, and he was a little nervous about what to do to keep the doors open. So he initially uh, thought of this this, this tiny tone wheel thing to just make like a sound. And like, hey, it can be a, a gimmick, a little gadget, and you can have this little tone wheel and plug it in and it makes a sound and kids will love it, almost like a toy. But he had an uh, assistant treasurer at uh, Hammond that was a church organist. and the organist was like, "Man, you should make an organ. Like if you can make one sound, you can make a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And apparently Hammond like loved the sound of a pipe organ. And that was it. Uh, he had um, The other thing, which was kind of funny that he was making a lot of money on that also went away, was this um, auto dealing bridge table. Uh, It was a bridge table that under the table had a little mechanical system that shuffled and dealt cards literally under the table to each player. Hmm. Uh, And he sold 14,000 of those in two years, but then everyone got tired of that. So he was always looking for the next thing to keep the doors open. And this, this, like, let's replicate a pipe organ was the next big thing.
1: Yeah. One other thing about him as a boss, too, and a company owner, he was smart enough to surround himself with other very smart engineers. And in particular, is a guy named John Hannert, who um, basically co-created the Hammond organ with Hammond. Um, I, I almost have the uh, impression that of the two, Hammond was the idea guy and Hannert was the one who figured out how to do it. Um, but when you put them together, what they did was they they took these tone wheels um, and at the at the behest of the organ-playing treasurer at the Hammond Company, um, realized that if you took 91 of them, you could essentially reproduce all the sounds that a pipe organ could make. Yeah. Which is really something because a pipe organ can make quite a bit of very rich sounds, a lot of different sounds. That's kind of the point of a pipe organ. I didn't realize until researching this is that it's meant to not only just sound like an organ, but it's also meant to mimic other uh, instruments, and it does that by mimicking the timber of a different thing. A timber is like, like you were talking about, where if you play an A on a piano, it sounds different than an A on a cello. Well, mm-hmm. the difference is timber, and if you can again figure out the harmonics surrounding that note, you can recreate what it sounds like um, on a piano an A or an A on a cello. And that pipe organs were able to do this. They did it using compressed air, mechanical stuff. John Hammond was the one who was like, I can take one of these giant things and size it down and make this whole, the same thing happen with electronics.
0: Yeah. It's like, you know, today if you go buy a, a Casio keyboard, mm-hmm. it's going to say, you know, horns, strings. Right. Uh, flute, trumpet, guitar. And those things never sound, strings do a pretty good job. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when you when you hit the, if you play a series of horns, you're not going to say, like, oh, my gosh, is there a mariachi band in here? Right. Uh, it approximates the sound in a, in a fun and useful way.
1: Even the samba beat's not going to dress that up <laughs> enough to pass muster.
0: <laughs> but you're right. At the very least, this was, like, a big deal. Pipe Orkins uh, could do it to get different sounds that would, you know, like, a, this is a flute uh, or an organ version of a flute, essentially.
1: Yeah, they're called, those were the stops. Like, you would pull a stop to let a rank or timber of um, pipes play, you could close the stop to keep that one from playing and allow other ones to play. One of Hammond's big breakthroughs was to figure out how to do that again electronically.
0: Yeah, like if you've ever seen a pipe organ up close, they have these little round knobs, mm-hmm. and that's called a stop knob, and it's either on or off, and you pull it in or pull it out, and that's letting compressed or pressurized air in or out to change the sound.
1: I saw that. That's where the term, the phrase "pulling out all the stops" comes from. When you have all yeah. the stops open, all the pipes are, are playing at the same time, which is,
0: yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so Hammond figures all this out. He gets a piano, um, guts it, uh, installs platinum switches, installs eight and a half miles of wiring, uh, installs hundreds of transistors, mm-hmm. and they are spinning these tiny tone wheel motors when you press a key. And it's it's pretty ingenious. So all of a sudden, he's electrified this thing. Uh, even though he doesn't play a musical instrument, mm-hmm. and he uh, instead of using these uh, these mechanical stops, he has uh, these these switches called tone bars. So if you ever see a Hammond organ and you see above the keys there, kind of where the the uh, stop knobs are in an organ, mm-hmm. there are these little little bars that you can just pull in or out, and uh, it has the same effect basically. And you know, depending on uh, who you are, you might have your favorite. Uh, tone bar settings for different songs. Uh, I think the classic, uh, like Jimmy Smith was this guy that was sort of really popularized at uh, jazz organ. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows like this is the Jimmy Smith setting. Like if you go to YouTube and you're talking about different tone bar settings, they'd be like, oh yeah, Jimmy Smith pulled all three of these on the left out and that was his setting. And you can replicate this stuff. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, so um, one of the things that that Hammond was interested in doing too was rather than say, you know, make this combination and it's the strings, or make this combination and it's the flute, yeah. he, he left it up to the person. So, like, those those stops would have to do with, like, attack and decay, like how fast the sound started and how long it took to finally, like, go silent again. Yeah. Um, those, these were, like, what the sound bars were doing. It wasn't like, oh, I'll press this button and now it's a string. And the reason why he did that, he likened it in an interview I saw to... um. How, like, a true painter would never buy a flesh pink paint. They mm-hmm. would they would buy a red paint and a white paint and yeah, yeah. you know orange paint and green paint, but like they would make their own paints. He was saying like he, his ham and organ allows an organist to to create their own sounds by putting together this basic stuff and creating something incredibly rich. Um, and, and in fact, I think they calculated that. There were 253 million possible tonal variations that you could come up with with the Hammond organ.
0: Amazing. That's from 38 draw bars. Uh, Really, really cool.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Uh, Should we take a break or no?
1: I was going to say we should probably take a break. Yeah? Yeah.
0: All right. Let's do it.
1: So uh, Hammond's organs took off really quickly. Um, I think he sold 1400 or something like that the first year. Imagine that, Chuck. Yeah, it's a lot. So, and, and I think they were originally about $30,000 today. I don't know how many drachmas, but they were $1,250 in the 30s, the mid-30s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot of money. Like, you had to be wealthy and you had to be really into music. Um, or you had to have a church that was kind of wealthy um, to afford it. But that's who he marketed to, serious um, musicians, home musicians, um, professional musicians, but also um, churches more than anything. Um, and it, it worked like he sold 1,400 in the first, the first year.
0: Yeah, George Gershwin, supposedly the first person to buy one, even though Henry Ford said he wanted the first six. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as the story goes, George Gershwin got the first. Uh, he's selling to, a, a, like you said, a lot of churches. I think uh, what was the number, like, f- by 1965, more than 50,000 churches had Hammond organs. Uh, by 1938, there were 1,000 uh-huh. uh, churches, uh, but also baseball stadiums. So if you've ever been to a baseball stadium, oh, they yeah. play those Hammond organs. Uh, radio soap operas very early on mm-hmm. You know, started, you know, if you remember, like, the dramatic music of a soap on the radio, that was an organ, a Hammond organ. Um, so 1936, this is just one year into the Hammond organ, uh, things are really, really doing well, and the pipe organ industry starts complaining to the FTC, mm-hmm. and they're like, "This guy is out there making all these claims about how you can replicate every sound uh, on a pipe organ, how it can it sounds the same as a ten thousand dollar pipe organ, mm-hmm. and like these are false claims, and he can't say that stuff." So the FTC started snooping around, and they said, "You know what? You can't make these claims." Uh, you can't say that stuff in your ads. And uh, we're going to give you a cease and desist letter that says like what you can and can't say. Mm -hmm. And Hammond says, you know what we should do? We should have a blind listening test of, it's like a John Henry thing, like my little... Uh, I think it was a twenty six hundred dollar organ that he used, mm-hmm. and a seventy five thousand dollar pipe organ. And let's go head to head and have experts listen in and say what they think.
1: Yeah, so that's what they staged, I think, in nineteen thirty six.
0: Yeah, well, I think that happened in thirty seven, but this had been, he'd been fighting with the FTC for a while at that point.
1: Okay, so yeah, that was exactly the kind of guy he was. He he would he was exactly the kind of person to come up with a blind listening test to settle things with the FTC. You know. <laughs> That's not how the FTC did things, but John Hammond kind of made them do it that way. And it was really, really risky because he he would have been essentially guilty of unfair business practices, and that could have all sorts of terrible effects. But from what I saw, that they weren't going to let him use the name or the word organ to for his, his instrument anymore. Oh, uh, really? I'm guessing that that would have had a pretty big damper on business as well. So he had a lot riding on this blind test, and it— was very mavericky to suggest it in the first place. But in 1937 at the University of Chicago Chapel, they went head to head. They hid speakers, Hammond speakers, um, among the pipes and put both the organ, the Hammond organ and the pipe organ behind screens. And they had 30 different little uh, pieces of music, and each one played 15. And that panel of judges that you mentioned, they marked down which of those 30 they, they thought had played it? The pipe organ or the Hammond organ?
0: Yeah, and these were uh, professional musicians judging. I think there were nine of them. Uh, most of them were organists, of course. Uh, and then he also had 15 college students. And he ended up basically winning. Um, I think they, I, did, I saw different numbers of how much they were correctly identifying. Yeah. I saw they were wrong a third of the time. I saw they were wrong half of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, what happened was the FTC said, and this is 1938 by this point, so this thing's dragging out. They said, "All right, here's a new cease and desist order. You can't say it can reproduce a ten thousand dollar organ because they could tell the difference there. But uh, you know, they did find that produced um, like other words that were using was that it sounded real, that it was uh, produced fine music, that it produced beautiful music, mm-hmm. and he was able to use this this wordage." And all his ads moving forward, which he took as a big victory.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I believe it was out of that battle where they calculated the 253 million different tonal um, sounds. Oh, interesting. And I believe they started using that for marketing, too. Because if you ask me, if I'm just an ordinary Joe, Mm -hmm. uh, 253 million different tones Mm -hmm. and makes as good a sound as a pipe organ, I'm going to be more wowed by the 253 million tones even though the pipe organ makes 300 million different tones because the pipe organ people aren't out there marketing to me like that and John Hammond is.
0: So if you're Joe Keyboardist, <laughs> yeah. you see you see the value in this thing. For sure. <laughs> I agree. Everyone talked about Joe the Plumber. No one ever talked about Joe the Keyboardist.
1: Oh, man, I forgot about Joe the Plumber. Good remember Lord, me? that is a was is, uh,
0: is that Sarah Palin?
1: I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember, remember. But, man, if you're, like if you're going to make a days. movie about the 2000 aughts, Right. Having him, like, somewhere in the background would really be a nice touch.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and Soy Bomb. What was that? Soy Bomb was the guy who rushed the stage in the, I think it was the Grammys during Bob Dylan's acceptance speech. Oh, really? I don't remember that at all. And he had a shirt on that said Soy Bomb? No, I don't remember that. Yeah. I can't remember the year. And I'm sure I got some of that wrong. But Soy Bomb, I know, was right.
1: It wasn't Bob Dylan. It was Bob Newhart. That's
0: right. <laughs> when he won his Grammy. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so he's back selling these organs again. Uh, famous people are using them. Baseball teams, stadiums are using them. Soap operas and churches, everyone's getting on board. Uh, a woman comes along by the name of Ethel Smith, who probably did more to popularize the Hammond early on than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in a movie, um, a Red Skelton movie called Bathing Beauty, mm-hmm. and played this song, and it's on YouTube. You should check it out. Yeah, she's cool. Just, The lady's got crazy fingers. She's so fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was like a Brazilian kind of song called Tico Tico that became a smash international musical sensation.
1: Yes, and Ethel Smith was... She she kind of idolized John Hammond because she realized what he had done um, by creating this Hammond organ. And so it was kind of symbiotic, even though she didn't meet him until much later. But she always kind of idolized him and was very grateful to him. um, Because, you know, without her... Or without him, she she said she would have probably gotten into an older profession than music, if you right. know what she meant. And then um, without her, his his organ just wouldn't have been as, as well-known, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That song was huge. Uh, also, Jimmy Smith, the aforementioned, no relation to Ethel, uh, jazz musician. Uh, even though people before him used it, he really kind of took it to a new level. Uh, and then... We have to talk about, because I know there are keyboard players and Hammond enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. They're like, guys, you can't talk about the Hammond organ without talking about the Leslie speaker. Yeah. Uh, If you've ever been to a a show, a concert, and you've seen a Hammond organ, I almost guarantee you that sitting beside that organ is this giant brown wooden box uh, that doesn't even look like a speaker because it doesn't have a big round uh, graded panel like most speakers do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you might be thinking, what in the world is that thing even? That is called a Leslie speaker. And it is the key, I think, to, and many people agree, to what makes the Hammond organ sound so amazing.
1: Yeah. Um, And Don Leslie was like, hey, I came up with this speaker that works really well with your organ and makes it sound a lot better. Can I come work for you? Or do you want to buy my idea? And remember, I said at the outset that Hammond was kind of egotistical here or there. And he was also, I think you said, tone deaf. And apparently, when you put those two things together, he wasn't <laughs> at all impressed with Leslie's invention because he couldn't hear any difference, and he also, yeah. I think, didn't really like somebody telling him that they had come up with something that improved on his invention. Totally. So um, for decades, there was a almost a one sided cold war between the Hammond Company, or specifically, um, I think I called him John Hammond, Larry Hammond. <laughs> And Don Leslie in Leslie's company. He um, spared no expense. He, he, would not, he would not entertain the idea of of using these Leslie speakers in his organs. He wouldn't let anybody else do it. But they worked so well, Chuck, that if you were a Hammond dealer, an authorized Hammond dealer— Mm-hmm. You would secretly like if somebody came in and bought a B three from you. You'd be like, "Let me show you something in the back." <laughs> right, and you exactly. take them back there. And you'd be like, "You really have to have this yeah. because it makes it so much better."
0: Yeah, he would even change the switches out from year to year, so you couldn't use it. Like you had to modify it basically to use with a, a Leslie. Uh, so the Leslie is really interesting. It's a, probably we should do a short stuff on it. But the secret to the Leslie is it's also electromechanical because it takes your sound and instead of just pumping it out like a regular speaker, Mm -hmm. it shoots the sound in two directions. It shoots it down to a bass speaker Mm -hmm. that is literally rotating and shoots it up to these two cones. They look like, sort of like the old ear cones that you would put to your ear to hear somebody better if you were hard of hearing. Right. That were on what looks like, kind of like a a record turntable. Mm -hmm. And these things spin and it would shoot the sound toward that and the the sound would spin through these spinning cones and come out the other side uh, through the speaker. It did, you know. It's not like it didn't have any venting for sound. It had these little slits at the top, right. but not like a, a big huge round hole. Yeah. And th- it was a belt driven thing by a motor, and these things would spin, and it, it was variable speed. So if you had it really really slow, it was sort of a warble. If you spun it really really fast. It's that sound mm-hmm. of classic rock that you know and love That's uh, awesome. or just rock and roll. If you if you hear a key pressed with that Leslie speaker spinning at top speed, mm-hmm. it's that vibrato, that instead of just the uh, and it makes a, a organ sound flat by comparison when you're not using one. Right, I'll bet. Uh, and really just brings it alive in a small space. So, you know, a pipe organ, one of the reasons a pipe organ sounds great is because it's used in a in a cathedral. Uh, if you're in your basement and you can't replicate a really great sound, this Leslie really aids in that.
1: The other thing it does um, is it serves as an alternate portal to Narnia. Once it gets spinning really fast, it <laughs> tears right. open the fabric of time and space.
0: Yeah, so hats off to Don Leslie. Uh you know, just a, a genius invention to go hand in hand. And I wish Larry Hammond had embraced it, but oh, he did not. Know, yeah, the ego got in the way. I think
1: even after he retired, he tried to prevent the company from from doing business with Ham, with Leslie. Yeah, um, they're like no. <laughs> ba- yeah, basically, right when he died, they started adding Leslie speakers to their yeah. setups, which is pretty yeah. cool. So, um, Larry Hammond, I think I said John again. If I did, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm just going to move forward. But he, those are good Easter eggs. He was more um, than just the the ham and organ inventor and the tickless clock, the tick and the box clock inventor,
0: right.
1: uh-huh. um, or the automatic bridge table inventor. He did all sorts of other stuff too.
0: Yeah, he invented probably the first synthesizer. Uh, it's called the Novacord. It's you should watch YouTube's of this thing if you're into musical instruments like old timey ones. It's this was in 1939. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Moog was a Mm. five-year-old who, you know, gets credit as being the the synthesizer inventor. So he invented the Novichord. He he invented all kinds of great stuff. I think he died uh, after his death. He ended up with 110 patents to his name. Uh, CBS bought... uh, He died in 1973. CBS had bought Hammond in 1965. Mm. They had also bought the Fender Guitar Company. So that's when CBS thought it was in the, the music uh, instrument business for a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hammond bought it back in 1980 from CBS. Uh, in 85, they went out of business. Uh, so like the last true Hammond B3, I think rolled off the line uh, in those years. Um, and I think they made a couple of million organs. So it's oh, not wow. like if you want a Hammond B3 organ, you can find them today. Mm-hmm. It's, they aren't cheap, but it's not like some huge rare collector item or anything like that.
1: One other thing I thought I thought was noteworthy, Chuck, is a while back you talked about how he was like, you know, a good boss and he, he was very proud of employing people. Um, two different presidents of the Hammond Company started out at the bottom. One is an office boy and one in the mm-hmm. mailroom and worked Amazing. their way up. That's, I mean, just having one president having done that is pretty impressive, but two is really significant. And really, I think it says a lot about the kind of company he built.
0: Totally. Uh, Suzuki, by the way, as a postscript, bought Hammond Mm -hmm. in 1989. Right. Uh, Suzuki of the, uh, motorcycle keyboard fame. (laughs) Sure. And in 2002, they started making a new version of the B3 again. Uh, I think it's called the XK3. And I listened to a comparison. I'm sure, uh, keyboard players and purists will say like, no, man, you gotta have the original Hammond. But it sounded just like it to me, um. It's a little brighter, maybe.
1: They need to set up a blind listening <laughs> test.
0: We should have at the Rockefeller Cathedral in Chicago. Mm-hmm. But uh anyway, the XK3—it uh, sounded pretty good to me. Cool for my dumb, semi-musical ear.
1: Uh, you got anything else?
0: I got nothing else. I enjoy these. We'll have to. I don't think we've done one on Moog yet, have we?
1: I don't think so. You keep saying Moog. It's very clearly Moog. <laughs> it's Moog. <laughs> I don't
0: know but uh, we, should, we should do him one day. I love, uh, I love covering these sort of pioneers in musical invention.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good little suite we're building. Okay?
0: Agreed. A sweet sweet.
1: So Chuck said sweet sweet, everybody, and as longtime listeners know, that just unlocked listener mail.
0: Uh, I'm going to call this a uh, quick correction. Uh, hey, guys, love the show. Uh, thanks for tackling the hard stuff. A uh, quick correction from the Xenobiotics episode. Uh, Josh says during the explanation of PFAS that they get into the municipal wastewater and we have no idea how to get them out of our water. But mm-hmm. that isn't true. Uh, mm-hmm. Granular activated carbon and reverse osmosis are two ways to remove PFAS from water. Lots of drinking water treatment systems are currently using this technology as we speak to remove PFAS. Uh, not saying they're expensive and difficult to manage, but they do exist. Uh, keep up the great work, Whitney B.
1: Thanks a lot, Whitney B, with that bit of good news. Um, I'm glad we can get PFAS out of our water. Yes. Uh, if you want to be like Whitney B and say, listen to me, you can send it in an email to stuffpodcast at
2: iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Radio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.
1: In Puerto Rico, there's adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored. Like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. Get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico and that remind you why you travel in the first place. Visits end but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island, it becomes a part of you. No passports required for US citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.